So how do you like your hash browns? According to C.J. Lots of Garden and Gun magazine, which that's a real magazine, uh, based in in Charleston, I think. C.J. Lots writes that about 30 years ago, owners of some waffle houses in the Atlanta area started noticing that their cooks were putting other stuff on the hash browns when they were making them for themselves or making them for family and friends. At the time, the only way that you could get your hash browns officially were scattered on the grill and and smothered in onions. But they they watched as some of their cooks were preparing them in, in different ways. And then on February 9th, 1984, inspired by their employees, inspired by their customers, Waffle House unveiled a new menu with two new options for hash browns. You could now get them covered with cheese and chunked with ham. There you go. But we've come a long way since 1984, and now at Waffle House, you have more options than just those few. Today, the house chef could make your hash browns like this. Scattered on the grill, smothered with onions, covered with cheese, chunked with ham, diced with tomatoes, peppered with jalapenos, capped with mushrooms, topped with birch chili, or country with sausage gravy. That's some serious hash browns, right? Jim Hassini was managing a Waffle House in the Atlanta area when these new changes and these new options came out back in the 80s. And now he's an executive vice president with the corporate office. This is what he said about this somewhat iconic way of ordering hash browns that's come out in the Waffle House. He says this, All of this grew organically in the restaurants by our cooks and our customers. There were no grand marketing plans that put it all into motion. So a significant way that people think about Waffle House when they think about Waffle House wasn't planned. It was something that just kind of happened. It it started small, but then it spread, and it spread throughout every location now. Imagine sitting in the booth one day, and there's a dainty little lady sitting in the booth next to you, and the waitress says, well, ma'am, how would you like your hash browns? And that dainty little lady kind of looks off at the wall, and she goes, you know what? I think I'll get them scattered and smothered and, and covered. And, and let's do chunked. And let's go ahead and make it diced. Let, let's do capped. Let's do topped. You know what? Let's go ahead and do country. Let, let's just put it all on there. Hassini said this. I have seen people have a triple order of hash browns, which by itself, a triple order of hash browns, covered with everything you can imagine for breakfast. And it's not like I've seen it one time. I see it almost every weekend. I tell myself they'll never finish that. And then they do. All of this started from a simple picture of a cook throwing a few extra things on his buddy's shredded potatoes. Something small grew into a big old plate of food. So, question for you this morning. What are you putting on your plate? What are you putting on the the plate of your mind? What's influencing your attitude? What's influencing your decision? Is your mind scattered this morning? (laughs) Is your mind scattered with stress or maybe scattered with fear, maybe scattered with worry, scattered with pride or apathy? Are Are you having a hard time pulling your thoughts together today? You know, we tend to be a kind of people that kind of ignore how we're thinking. We kind of downplay our thoughts. We kind of do the thing of, well, i got to get up tomorrow morning and do the next thing. So, so we just don't pay a whole lot of attention to how we're thinking. We don't put a whole lot into it. But that's a very dangerous philosophy. 
Why? Well, how you think influences how you talk. How you think influences how you act. How you talk and how you act, they create the habits of your life. And the habits of your life reveal to the world what you value. And the habits of your life reveal to the world who you really are. And so how you think, it matters. It's it's not something we can just ignore. An empty mind is not good because then you're not thinking anything. But a full mind is important because what is it filled up with? Long before they appeared on the menu at Waffle House, Jesus had some very interesting defining words about the concepts of scattered and smothered and covered. Listen to what he says in Luke 11, beginning verse 23. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. In this scene, Jesus has just cast out a demon. And there were some people in the crowd that they said, oh, well, Jesus, you did that by the power of Satan. And Jesus says, well, that didn't make a whole lot of sense. You know, why would Satan send one of his workers to go get rid of one of his best sergeants? I mean, a guy who's purely and perfectly successful. Why would he get rid of him so that the enemy, their enemy, would then go free? The math just didn't work. There were some other people in the crowd. They were saying, well, I mean, Jesus, that was nice. That was, that was kind of a neat miracle. But if I'm going to believe in you, you're going to have to kick it up a notch. You know, there's, there's got to be a little more to this. I, I need something more if I'm really going to be persuaded to believe you and follow you. Apostle Paul was divinely appointed to write part of Jesus' resume. This is what he wrote. Colossians 1, verse 16. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Don't put that on your resume. (laughs) They'll pretty much know it's not true. But Jesus, that is exactly what goes on his resume. So does that make Jesus kind of a big deal? No, actually it doesn't. What that means is that Jesus is the deal. There is absolutely no one like him. See, there's no reason to be looking for another sign or another vision, another dream, another miracle. Because there's nothing and there's no one that remotely compares to the power and the wisdom and the love and the authority of Jesus. Nothing. President Teddy Roosevelt said one time, speak softly and carry a big stick. Well, Jesus was doing that 1,900 years before the president said that. But what Jesus was doing with his stick was a little different maybe than what President Roosevelt was thinking. See, Jesus was going around and and he was always drawing lines in the sand. He was always creating a conversation where you were half to going to decide which way you were going to choose, which side we're going to be on. And here, he draws a pretty big line, right? I mean, listen again to what he says. He who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. So, who do you say Jesus is? Who do you say that Jesus is? What do you think about Jesus? 
Do you think Jesus is a wise philosopher? Do you think Jesus is a nice man who loves poor people? Do you think Jesus is a, is a good guy who really cares about children and he really cares about people who are cast out by society, people who are mistreated or rejected? Yes, Jesus is all of those things. But Jesus also said this. Jesus said he was the son of God. Jesus said that he came directly from heaven. Jesus says that he was the only ultimate savior of the world, that there's no other way to God except through him. Jesus said that if you love him, you're going to obey the things that he asks you to do. And Jesus said this, not everybody who calls him Lord is really a Christian. And Jesus also said that if you do not believe in him and you do not trust in him and you do not cling to him and you do not rely on him as the only ultimate source of your spiritual hope, then you'll be separated from God forever and you'll experience a horror and a terror that we really can't describe using human terms. See, that's how Jesus talked. Those are the things that Jesus said. Jesus was kind of always drawing a line in the sand. He was kind of always trying to communicate to people, look, there's a, there's a picture here, and I'm going to graciously demand you choose a side. You step to one side or the other. I overheard a conversation in a coffee shop this week. A young woman was talking to an older man, and, and the subject was a, an issue of immorality that the Bible is pretty clear about. It's not, not confused about when it comes to being sinful or, or unrighteous. And the young woman said something like this. She said, well, I'm going to err on the side of love. And then if I'm wrong, you know, when I get there, I'll just, before I walk into heaven, just say, hey, sorry about that. And and everything will be okay. Look, I, I don't know if heaven prefers decaf or regular. I don't know if heaven prefers Coke or Pepsi. I, I don't know all the answers to every single question. But I do know God's been pretty clear about a lot of things. He's been clear in such a way that that we see it in the natural way the world works, but we also see it in the supernatural truth of the Bible. There's some things that God has not been confusing about, some some things that God is, is clear at when it comes to the truth. And to work around those things, it, it requires effort. You, you really have to work around God's truth sometimes. Sometimes, though, you don't really work around it. You just struggle with it. There's, there's someone or there's something or there's some philosophy. There's, there's something that you're just so tied to that your emotions are so strong behind that you hear what God's saying, but you, you can't give in to God's truth. You, you just surrender to your emotions. And other people don't even struggle with it. They're, they're pretty clear. This is what God has said, but I'm just going to deny that, and I'm going to surrender to my own emotions. Sometimes I think we forget that when we look at the pattern of Jesus, he kind of doesn't give us options to just go with our emotions or not go with our emotions. Jesus really is kind of always drawing a line in the sand, right? He's kind of always forcing us to, to think through these things. I mean, even here he says, what, if you're not with me, then you're against me. I mean, that, that's strong language, right? If you're not with me, you're against me. If you're not helping people, find God. If you're not helping people enter into heaven, then you're actually pushing them away. He's saying, if you are in neutral, you're actually driving. 
Some might put it this way, there are no spiritual orphans. Strong when you think about it. There's no spiritual orphans. You're either an adoptee of Christ or you're an adoptee of Satan. Somebody else put it this way, that that the reality is everybody will have everlasting life. Everybody will live forever. You either live forever the moment that you die, you will begin forever as a friend of God, or you'll begin forever as an enemy of God. And some people say, ah, it's so mean. That's so backward thinking. That's, that's so judgmental. Perhaps, and, and that may be how you feel. But this is the consistent way that Jesus talked. These are the things that, that Jesus said. So because these are the things that Jesus said, we, we can't just kind of blow them off. You know, based on the way that Jesus talked, if your version of Christianity is just a, you know, 15, 20 Sundays a year for an hour, then you may not be a Christian. If, if that's as far as Christianity goes with you, is, is attending a church for an hour or two, you know, a few Sundays a year, then, then maybe, according to how Jesus taught, you're not a Christian. Based on the way that Jesus taught, if you're undecided about following Jesus, Jesus says you've already made your decision. That's the language that he uses. If you're not with him, then you're against him. It's not like you're in some strange place trying to figure out what you want to do. Jesus says you're not responding to him. And I think when we look at how Jesus talked, it wasn't that he was ever being mean. You can just almost see his face with this tremendous amount of love. And it's almost like he would look at people when he'd say these things, and he would say, just, just stop. Stop doing that. Don't be nominal. Don't be casual. Don't be passive. Don't, don't look at the truth. Don't look at me and be undecided. It was like Jesus was constantly saying, please come, please come. Receive this adoption that I have purchased for you. Jesus didn't say, hey, look, you guys can have Mondays and Fridays off. And then, of course, long weekends. But, you know, I need you all the other times. That's not what Jesus said. He said things like this, Luke 9, 23. If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. Jesus said things like this. He who is not with me is against me. I mean, th- these are strong things. So what does that look like in real life? Well, he kind of gives us a picture. It's a scenario, if you will. And it's probably a scenario that the way he talks about it might be a little bit normal. Look what he says in verse 24. When the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest and not finding any. It says, I will return to my house from which I came. As I shared last week, I cannot force you to believe that Satan is real. I cannot force you to believe that the devil is real. I cannot force you to believe that demons are real. I can simply say that Jesus says that Satan is real and that Jesus says that demons are real. And the Bible says that that Satan hates you and he hates me. And the Bible says that he sends his demons out all over the world all the time trying to discourage or depress or destroy or devour people just like you and just like me. And so here Jesus gives this scenario where an unclean spirit leaves somebody that he has been dominating and controlling. Jesus doesn't say why he leaves, but he does say where he ends up. He ends up in waterless places. What is a waterless place? Well, it's a dry place. It's a, it's a barren place. We might think of it kind of like a desert. But in the, in the scene here, desert doesn't really connect with us. So think about it maybe in a different way. This unclean spirit, this demon, leaves. He wants to go check some things out. 
You know, maybe he's tired of the place he's been hanging out, tired of the place he's living. And, and he wants to go look around out in the real world a little bit, see if he can find a, a better spot to hang out. And so he goes, and he gets out there in the real world, and he finds out, you know what, there's nothing out here I really like. This, this wasn't all it was cracked up to be. And he says, you know, I think I'm just going to go back to my old place. I hadn't turned my keys in yet. I mean, I haven't picked up my deposit check, so I'm just going to go back. And what does he find when he goes back? Well, Jesus keeps on. Verse 25. And when it comes, it finds it swept and put in order. So the landlord acknowledges that the unclean spirit is gone and straightens up a little bit, sweeps the place out. But notice what Jesus says here. The unclean spirit, the demon comes back to the place that he used to live, and it's still vacant. It's still free. No one has moved in. It's been swept, but it hasn't been cleaned, and there's not a new owner. If you get a call from a friend, they say, hey, I'm, I'll be over about 30 minutes to hang out for a little while. That, is that okay? You're not going to hang up the phone and, and start spring cleaning, right? You're just to straighten up a little bit. You know, you're going to make things look a little bit presentable. That seems to be all that happened here, according to Jesus. Things just got a little straightened up. The demon left, but nobody moved in. Somebody put it this way. It's almost like the demon gets to the door and kind of opens the door and says, Hello? Anybody here? And no one responds. There's no response. No one challenges him. No one says, no, you can't come in here anymore. I'm, I'm the owner. I'm the new renter of this place. So why is Jesus saying any of this? Why is he telling a story about an unclean spirit? Well, remember the scene. He's just cast out a demon. He's got some people who are challenging his authority. He's got some people who are asking him for a bigger sign. He's got some people who are saying that he's working for Satan. So in the middle of that scene, he begins to respond to the people that he is being accused by. And part of his response is to maybe point out to them, hey, you know what, some of you guys might think you're okay in the religion department, but you might just have a degree from moral university. You've cleaned up some things, but maybe nothing has changed. Maybe there were some people in the crowd that their demon was getting drunk, or their demon was doing drugs, or, or their demon was, was shoplifting or embezzling or stealing pens and paper from, from the office. Maybe their demon was something like cheating on tests at school or, or maybe beating people up or, or some kind of sexual sin. Or maybe their demon was just being greedy maybe ignoring their family or a lot of other things that don't sound like something you'd get arrested for, but they sure don't please the Lord. And what happened was is those particular things they got rid of. Those demons, they, they left their house and so they swept the place up. But according to how Jesus talked, nothing changed. They might have gotten baptized, they might have even joined a church, but nothing took the place of the demon. There was a rush that the demon was gone, and there was some calm, and there was some peace, but nothing else came in to replace. Empty souls are dangerous places. Why? Because another demon can come in. I mean, think about it. You can quit getting drunk. But then you can start eating a dozen donuts as an appetizer to your dessert every night. Or you could quit overeating and then abandon your family and, and trade it in for hours at the gym and standing in front of the mirror posing and looking at yourself. And see, the reality is you can be religiously right and heavenly wrong. 
You can have fantastic family values and not be in the family of God. This is how Jesus talked. This is, this is the way he communicated. But someone might say, well, come on, what's the big deal? Hey, my wife's no longer a lazy drunk. Things are better. My husband's no longer a, a fat slob. Things are, things are better. Hey, our new leaders, they have better morals than our previous leaders. So, so what's the big deal? As long as there's less sin or maybe sin that doesn't feel as bad, doesn't that make everything okay? Well, Jesus says undoubtedly no by his next words. Look what he says in verse 26. Then it goes along. And takes along seven other spirits, more evil than itself. And they go in and live there. And the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. So the unclean spirit comes back. He realizes nobody's there. He's got the place to himself. And so he texts some of his buddies. Hey, you guys should come and stay with me. Because maybe they had left their houses. But when they went back, there was a a new renter. There was a new owner. In fact, the place wasn't even there anymore. It was a a brand new home with brand new doors and brand new locks. And so the one spirit says, hey, why don't you all just come and hang out with me? You know, the phrase that crosses my mind, we use it a lot, is, oh, well, it's choosing the lesser of two evils. You know, we should be careful with that because the lesser of two evils might have friends. And his friends might be more evil and more available than we really want. So what does Jesus say about these extra house squatters. Well, he says in his language, things are going to be worse than they were before. Well, that's encouraging, right? See, before there was, there was one demon. And, and even in this scene, the one demon that he cast out was a man who was mute. He couldn't talk, couldn't speak to his wife, couldn't speak with his kids, couldn't speak with his family. He, he was dominated by this demon. It was terrible. It was a miserable way to live. And Jesus says, when he comes back, if the place is still empty, he's going to bring more, and it's going to be worse than it was before. The picture, at least to me in a very small way, is when someone hears about Jesus over and over again, they hear God's truth over and over again, and they go, I'll do it tomorrow. I'll deal with that next week. Or God commands them something in their heart. Listen, this is how you need to be acting toward your spouse. This is how you need to be acting toward your kids. This is how you need to be acting toward people at work. This is what you should be doing today. And we say, don't have time. It's the same kind of picture. But if we take it a little deeper, how does this flesh out maybe in the life of of a real person, at least the way Jesus talks about it? Well, imagine you have somebody that hears the story of the gospel. They hear that Jesus saves. They, They hear this fantastic truth that Jesus rescues people and he takes them to heaven. And boy, they genuinely and authentically and excitedly believe and they genuinely try to start following Jesus. But then things start happening in life. Marriage gets a little tougher. Parenting gets a little tougher. Things get hard at work. Things get hard at school. There's some snags in your health. You begin to hear something in the Bible you don't know if you believe with. The the pastor doesn't visit you when your pet turtle has surgery. You know, I mean, there's, there's all these things, you know, that distract us. And all of a sudden, this thing about Jesus getting saved, Jesus saving people, it gets a little blurry. We, we remember the bits and pieces of it, but all of a sudden, it doesn't dominate our joy anymore. 
And we kind of quit listening to Christian music and we just, we just kind of check out. Or maybe you don't have hard things that happen. Maybe it's not bad things and tough things that happen. Maybe you just get a new job. Maybe you get a big promotion at work. Maybe you inherit a, a vacation home at the beach or the mountains or the lake or, you know, in Switzerland somewhere, you know, and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're just gone a lot more. Maybe you win Dancing with the Stars and, you know, you're on a world tour, you know, all over the place. Maybe your kid gets selected to like 14 all-year all-star teams and, you know, you're just gone all the time. And what happens is it's not that any of those things are bad. I don't know, maybe dancing with the stars. But, you know, it's not that any of those things are really bad. But what happens is all of a sudden, those become your life. And you don't know whether you're coming or going. And a focus on salvation, a focus on being redeemed, it's, it's lost. And on your way out of the door one weekend, you accidentally hit the switch and the vacancy sign flashes back on in the front of your house and you forget that it's even there and you don't even see it when you come home. And is that to say that if any of those things happen in your life, the good things, the bad things, the tough things, that automatically that means you're not a Christian? No, not at all. We all have seasons of life. We all have tough times. But when the tough times or when the good times begin to take the gospel away as our primary joy, that's when it gets tough. Because then the whole idea of Jesus just completely and totally disappears. Jesus is always drawing lines, always drawing lines. And in almost every conversation, the question kind of is the same. Are you born again? Do you really have a relationship with God? Or did you just join the church? Are you born again or did you just have a great time at camp or a great time at a crusade or a really cool conversation in a coffee shop? Or have you truly been born again? Listen, All of our stories when it comes to faith in Christ are different, all of them. Some of y'all got saved in a church service or a camp service. Some of you got saved in your bedroom. Some of you got saved in your den or in your car. We all have different stories, but we have stories that are true. Somebody's described this like natural childbirth. You know, my oldest child, if I remember the math right, took about 18 hours to get here from the first moment that labor started. It took a while. And then you have Abigail Burgraff, who took about 18 minutes, you know. She just decided she was ready to be here. But you have two young ladies, and they're both born because we see the evidence, right? We see the evidence in an 18-year-old, and we see the evidence in one that hasn't quite made it to 18 days yet. But we see the truth. We, we see that there has been birth. Jesus is drawing a line pretty consistently and demanding that people answer that question. Hey, have you been born again? Are you really a child of God? You see, salvation is not a temporary weekend home exchange. Salvation is not a fixer-upper. Salvation is a tear-down and start all over again. Salvation means that there's not a vacancy sign outside the motel of your life anymore because there is no more motel. The motel is gone. And there's a new house and there's new doors and there's new locks and there's a new owner and that new owner is Jesus. See, at the end of the day, salvation is not about getting rid of something as much as it is about getting someone. And who are we getting? We're gaining, we're getting Christ. Paul said it this way to the Philippians, to live is Christ and to die is gain. 
Paul says, so I have Christ, and if I have Christ, I have everything. He's the ultimate. If I'm alive, I have the promises of Jesus to lean on. If I'm alive, I have the presence of Jesus to call on. And if I die, then I get Jesus for real, and I get him for real forever. But you know, some people just, they really truly have a hard time getting their minds around that. And I'm not just talking about people who aren't Christians. I'm talking about people who who profess to be Christians. We can have a really hard time seeing the value of Jesus. I mean, we, we have so many other things that are so valuable in so many good ways in our lives. Family, friends, our jobs, our homes, cars, our favorite team, our favorite vacation spot, you know, travel, trips, mission trips even. There's so many great things in our lives, so many good things. How do we get to the point that we see Jesus as the ultimate? How does Jesus become the most valuable? When there's, there's so many valuable things in my life, I don't know if I can really make that connection. Why is it that you say Jesus is so valuable? I hope this helps just a little bit. It helps me. John Piper writes, Christ is a more wonderful person than anyone on earth. He is wiser, stronger, and kinder than anyone you enjoy spending time with. He is endlessly interesting. He knows exactly what to do and what to say at every moment to make his guests as glad as they can possibly And he overflows in love and with infinite insight into how to use that love to make his loved ones feel loved. That's a lot of love. So, are you a loved one of Jesus? Have you been born again? And do you feel that love? Let me just confess for all of us, some days we don't. Maybe today is one of those days for you. But I want you to know these promises are true. These are the promises that we're supposed to smother our hearts in. We're supposed to marinate our minds in these promises of Jesus. They are real. They are true. They are there on the good days and the bad days, the healthy days and the sick days. They're there when your team wins and when your team loses. They're there when everything falls apart at the hospital or when everything is great. Last week, I was standing in front of the hospital, the front door, and I saw this amazing and sobering moment. I saw one woman walking out of the front door in tears, just crying uncontrollably. And literally right behind her, coming out the other side of the door, are two grandparents and a daddy with tons of baby stuff. It is the scene I see every day, and, and you, you do too, it, if you're looking. Extreme sorrow and extreme joy all in the same moment. This is life. Life is look at the tragic floods, look at the tragic accidents, and then right next to that is something about our favorite celebrity. See, life is full of things for us to fill our minds with, and we get distracted. We get wiggly eyes. 
But the truth of the matter is what we know about Jesus is the most amazing truth in the universe. And on the days that you don't feel loved, I promise he is the only one who can make you feel loved. Because as the choir sang, he died to set us free. If we can smother our hearts in these truths, if we can cover our hearts with these truths, I promise life will be different. It won't be easier, but it'll be different. Because what we will see is time and time again when we look at Jesus, we will see that there is absolutely nothing more satisfying than knowing Jesus Christ. There is nothing more satisfying than gaining Christ. There is nothing more satisfying than gaining Christ. There is nothing more satisfying than gaining Christ.